Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off? Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. On the last episode of The Future of Everything, we took a boat ride on the Salish Sea around coastal Vancouver, British Columbia. Secure? Secure. To get a glimpse of an endangered population of southern resident orcas. This whale population is struggling to find food. And underwater ocean noise, exacerbated by an increase in ship traffic, is interfering with the whale's echolocation, the process they use to find prey and to communicate. Canadian regulators are using an artificial intelligence model to detect where the whales are. So that's the ultimate goal, is to help these whales to minimize human impacts from vessel traffic. The goal is to get mariners to slow down or steer clear of the orcas altogether. If you want to hear more about that, check out our last episode, Google AI Tries to Save the Whales. Essentially, the AI model is helping humans to detect whales. But could there be a way to take it one step further? What if we could alert the orcas? Imagine if instead of just asking the boats to slow down, you could also broadcast a, psst, hey, there's a ship here, or your predator is in the area. If we could speak their language, we could be much more humane in the way that, that we interact with them. From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Today on the podcast, some of the ways researchers are attempting to communicate with marine mammals, from basic primitive attempts to sophisticated techniques that employ machine learning and AI to decode non-human language. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. A few summers ago, Paul Cottrell from Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans had a big problem. Part of his job is to keep orcas away from boats and boats away from orcas. But he had this whale that kept coming up to people. We had a transient killer whale, T-73B, who had taken up residence in Comox Harbour, which is an estuary that's quite populated on the east coast of Vancouver Island. And this animal would not leave. It was interacting with sailboats, with paddleboarders, and even at one point um, pulling on an anchor line in a sailboat. And a big water festival was coming up. Dragon boat races were going to have to be cancelled because of this whale. We really have no idea why the animal was there and wouldn't leave. 
But they did know a lot about him. Remember, these orca populations in the Pacific Northwest are well documented. The Canadian DFO can identify each one by its individual markings and by their underwater calls. They have thousands of hours of orca audio recordings. And because orcas are very social creatures, researchers also know which orcas are friends. We decided to explore actually using a playback of uh, this animal's buddy that we had where he used to hang around with previously. And um, we had DFO recordings of that animal. So Cottrell and his team took the recording of the orca's friend and played it underwater, outside of the estuary, hoping to lure him away from the boaters. We put the speaker in the water and immediately he's coming at you at about 10 to 12 knots. So there was an immediate reaction this animal was porpoising towards us, thinking we were his buddy. So uh, we had to make sure that we turned it off immediately. It worked. He got the whale to leave the area. Now, it was a rudimentary way to send a message, but Cottrell says it can be useful. There may be times when his team needs to keep marine mammals out of certain areas, not just because of ships, but because of oil spills. The port of Vancouver is getting busier. There's been a dramatic increase in petroleum product exports. And the possibility of an oil spill is real. So Cottrell and his team are preparing for an emergency scenario. If a spill were to happen, Cottrell says the AI model we talked about in our last episode will help them to locate the orcas. But knowing where they are isn't enough. They want to be able to keep the orcas away from the spill. And they're adapting a technique used by Japanese hunters to corral dolphins, clanging metal pipes together underwater. The Japanese word for this method is oikomi, meaning the drive. And these cetaceans really don't like that that sound. So by using these pipes, they can actually change the direction of travel of these, these animals and move them. They were able to corral them into these bays using that multiple boats. So it's almost like you're trying to communicate with them in a way. Like, don't go in here. Like, stay away from here. Don't come here. We want you to change direction. And and we're doing it in a coordinated way with multiple vessels and um, multiple pipes in the case that we have to do that. But this is basically a scare tactic, a primitive solution, and it has shortcomings. It would sure help if we could actually tell the animals what's happening in a way they could understand. Coming up, a researcher who helped originate the methods used on that orca in Vancouver turns to advanced technology to better understand dolphins. Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off for the company, its investors, and for CEO Mark Zuckerberg? Over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company. And I want to anchor our work and our identity on what we are building towards. Meta's trillion-dollar business and how we use the internet could hang in the balance. Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal.
The method Paul Cottrell from Canada's DFO used to move a male worker out of the estuary and out of harm's way using his buddy's vocalizations gets an A-plus from marine mammal scientist Dr. Diana Reese. What they did is absolutely correct and brilliant, and it works. Reese directs the Animal Behavior and Conservation Master's Program at Hunter College in New York. I'm also a marine mammal scientist, and I study dolphin cognition and communication. Decades ago, Reese was part of a team that used both traditional oikomi diversion methods and whale song playback to redirect another wayward whale who was swimming away from his southerly migration route and into San Francisco Bay. But since then, Reese and other researchers have been searching for a more direct way to communicate with cetaceans, especially in emergency situations. One of the things that we've been trying to look for for years is a distress call, if we could put a danger call. And people are looking at different ways of decoding, deciphering. Reese has been researching this decoding issue with another highly intelligent marine mammal, bottlenose dolphins. Reese works with the dolphins in captivity at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. To start, um, we try to decode dolphin vocalizations and we use computer programs um, to help us analyze how they communicate because their whistles are complex and we're interested in figuring out how they organize these whistles. Are they anything like a sentence? Are they semantic? In other words, do they have meanings? Reese listened to dolphin whistles and vocalizations, then looked for patterns and meanings, but also was mindful that the dolphins may be doing things in their communications that humans can't even recognize or might be unaware of. These are really big-brained, highly social species who are definitely communicating. All animals communicate. We're just trying to crack the code, decipher how they communicate. To do that, Reese helped develop an underwater keyboard system. It looks like a big tic-tac-toe board. The captive dolphins used the keyboard to ask for things, like toys, treats, belly rubs. And they did this by pressing buttons with different symbols with their beaks. And in each case, if it hit the ball key, it would hear, and we would give it a ball. If it hit the rub key, it would hear, and we would give it a rub, and so on and so forth. Over time, the dolphins started to imitate the sounds. Listen to Delphi, a year-old captive-born bottlenose dolphin. Delphi had just pressed the white three-dimensional triangle button on the keyboard, producing the computer-generated whistle for ball. The clip is short. It goes by in about three seconds. After the computer-generated whistle, you hear Delphi imitate it. Here it is again. Now keep in mind, the dolphins weren't just imitating the sounds of the whistles. Reese says they made the sound to get researchers to give them what they wanted. And this, she says, is the beginning of what researchers consider actual communication. So they would now come up on occasion and whistle themselves, bypassing the keyboard, and then roll over for a rub. That's where you start getting into communication, when they start using it back. In the three decades since, the underwater keyboard has gotten an upgrade. Reese has started working with researchers at Rockefeller University on a newfangled underwater dolphin touchpad. They call it the D-pad. It's a four-by-eight-foot touchscreen 
but it's actually an optical touchscreen. In other words, the dolphins touch it with the front of their faces, the, the beak, and just coming into barely touching it, it's registered not so much by their touch, but by cameras that record where they're touching. The new touchpad gives the dolphins more choices and control in requesting specific objects, activities, and stimuli. For example, dolphins can draw on the screen, and they can choose from a number of videos to watch. Reese says they like watching videos of other dolphins. The D-pad also enables researchers to record and analyze what the dolphins are doing. So the first thing is to say, what do they want? Watch them, learn from them, partner with them. What do they want? And then can we give them a voice? Can we give them a means of control? And then meet them on that ground with some kind of symbol system. The D-pad is still in the pilot phase. Reese says other projects are also underway to study the social habits of dolphins, but in the wild. For one, Reese and a team of researchers will be doing things like using cameras and drones to document wild dolphins doing what they do. Reese has also co-founded a multidisciplinary group called Interspecies I.O., the nonprofit has some high-profile founders you might have heard of, including rock legend Peter Gabriel. Reese says the idea is to share knowledge across platforms. For example, there are lots of computer programs, AI programs, uh, big data programs that are being done with different species that can be adapted for work with other species. So a researcher decoding bat communication can get ideas from scientists studying whale calls. The next step, says Reese, and it's a big one, is creating a shared understanding between humans and animals. So that's the question. So how do we communicate with another animal if we don't have a shared code, right? After the break, we talk to people who are working together to try to crack that code using artificial intelligence and machine learning models. That's next. Over the past several decades, Diana Reese and other marine mammal researchers have collected a massive array of cetacean sounds. Dolphins, humpback whales, orcas, and more. But with so much material, and more of it still coming in, researchers are turning to machine learning to look for patterns that could decode the meaning behind these animal vocalizations. The algorithms the machine learning is using on animal communication were inspired by a coding breakthrough that happened in human communication. It came a few years ago, in 2018, from two sources around the same time, groups at Facebook AI and at the University of the Basque Country in Spain. They discovered similar ways of quickly translating the world's thousands of languages. Very generally, the researchers found they could use geometric shapes to represent the relationships between words within sentences. The method is known as unsupervised machine translation. It kind of bypasses traditional methods of translation. You don't have a dictionary. You don't have a Rosetta Stone. This is Aza Raskin. He's a technologist best known for inventing infinite scroll. You know, the thing that facilitates the time suck that happens when you casually check your social media posts, only to surface hours later. 
These days, Raskin has mixed feelings about that discovery, and he's now a co-founder of the Earth Species Project, or ESP. It's a nonprofit that uses machine learning to decode and translate non-human communication. ESP came into being soon after the no-dictionary solution to human language translation. Raskin describes the method that inspired his work at ESP, using shapes to decode language. The shape looks sort of like a galaxy, and every word is a star in this galaxy. The way they're positioned in relation to each other is how the words and concepts relate to each other. It sort of turns the, the internal relationships into geometric structure. So words that mean similar things are near each other. For example, the words for dog and canine and bark are closely related, so they end up near each other. And Raskin says that's the case no matter what languages you're speaking. He says if you compare the shapes found in different languages, you can overlay those shapes onto one another and translate between the languages. And what's amazing is that you can make this shape for, say, English. You can make this shape for, say, Chinese. And what was deeply surprising is that you could just rotate one shape on top of each other. The point, which is dog, ends up in roughly the same places for each language. And it lets you decode languages by using one language as a key for another language. With that research already well-established, Raskin and ESP then made a pretty big intellectual leap. They thought, hey... Models that can help you see hidden, unseen similarities across languages could also help to decode non-human language. By analyzing the songs and the sounds of animal communication, it may be possible to translate them back into something that we humans can understand. So ESP is building an Earth species library of sorts, a data set of all kinds of recordings of biodiversity and documenting all the non-human cultures on Earth. By collecting all of these data sets from this incredible wealth of of partners, um, that lets us begin to build shapes for each one of the languages and compare them to each other. More data makes the models work better. And as we've been hearing, cetacean researchers have a huge collection of audio recordings, so this was a great fit. Dr. Diana Reese provided ESP with her decades of dolphin vocalizations, and there are others. The luminaries of uh, the biology field, people like Roger Payne, um, who... Maybe you've heard that name, Dr. Roger Payne. And if you haven't, you probably know of his work alongside his former wife, Katie Payne, with humpback whales. Back in the 1960s, the Paynes discovered that humpback whale songs follow classical musical structure. They have come up with many of the same musical laws. They use, for example, sonata form, ABA, a statement, and then a change, and then back to the original statement. They use rhyme, as my former wife, Katie Payne, discovered. The songs were a touchstone for the times. The Payne's research is widely credited with contributing to the political will that ended whale hunting in most countries. Payne says back then, 
collecting the sound, organizing it, it was incredibly labor-intensive. We had to do everything by hand, and the level that we were looking at whale songs from humpback whales uh, was extremely um, reduced from what we can expect to succeed in this new world that we've entered. The digital world is what has made uh, artificial intelligence pragmatic and more possible. Payne hopes the work being done by ESP and other groups will reinvigorate global attempts to protect cetaceans, many of which are endangered. But there are big questions hovering over all of this research. It's still unknown whether animal language is anything like human language at all. Maybe they don't use words. Maybe they have a continuous utterance which has all kinds of variations to it. There are lots of ways that they could get around it. Maybe most of the sounds they make are are only concerning a general feeling they have, which is not necessarily translatable into one word. Uh, Maybe it's something vastly more complex. Who knows? Other researchers call into question the entire endeavor, including Columbia psychology professor Herbert Terrace, who researches animal cognition and language, mainly in primates. Animal communication is basically a system for communicating emotions. Animals will communicate emotionally about territory, about mating, about danger, and it's all unidirectional. They talk to affect the behavior of another creature, but they're not transmitting information. And whatever they communicate is hardwired. It's innate. They don't learn it. They're born to make a particular sound, particular song, and they can't learn a different one. Like a human infant can learn any one of the 7,000 languages that we know exists on the face of the earth. An animal can only communicate in one language, and that's the language that it's genetically prepared to communicate in. Terrace doubts researchers will ever be able to find meaningful animal vocalizations in the same way that words convey meanings for humans. Even if it is possible, and the unsupervised machine learning translation models can be applied to animals, Aza Raskin with ESP knows this is still an audacious idea, with plenty of hurdles ahead. There are a slew of technical problems. This is a journey into the unknown. One big unknown is called the carrier signal problem. Which part of the signal is meaningful? Is it how fast an animal is speaking? Is it the pitch? Is it the way the pitch changes? Is it the silence in between the way that they're speaking? Um, Is it the harmonic structure? The machine learning model has to figure out which parts of animal communication are the meaningful parts to the animals. Another roadblock the machine learning has to tackle is language units. Humans have discrete word units. Even if someone's speaking another language, there's universal cues that can signal when a thought or sentence ends. But this is harder for an algorithm to discern. Raskin says the model also has trouble knowing whether a word said in different ways means the same thing or something different. Hello and 
hello and hello and hello. They all sound different, but they're still the same word. That can make it hard for the model to identify discrete language units, even more so with animal sounds that may sound similar but mean completely different things. And Raskin points to a third roadblock known as the cocktail party problem. Imagine being at a party. It's loud, people are laughing, drinking, everyone's talking at once. How can you understand what any one person is saying? It's sort of the equivalent of being able to listen to a symphony and then just pull out the violins or just pull out the oboe. Humans solved for this cocktail party problem eons ago. It's one of the things we're good at. Our brains develop the ability to pick out individual voices in a crowd. Now, computers are in the process of figuring it out. Raskin and his team say machine learning techniques are making advances that they hope will eventually solve these problems. We are still a very long ways away from translating non-human language. But key technological and scientific minds of our time, like Raskin, Payne, Reese, and others, say we need to do this as much for humans as for animals. That this knowledge will lead to human advancement. We have centuries now of examples of where trying to understand the other species of Earth um, lead to new ways of understanding ourselves, of our environment, of the world. And even more so, it's about shifting the perspective of who we think we are. When you shift your perspective, so much can change. Those very broad benefits to humanity come on top of the more concrete perks of human-animal communication, like one day being able to alert the endangered southern resident orcas in the Pacific Northwest that, hey, a ship is coming. Imagine if instead of just asking the boats to slow down, you could also broadcast a psst, there's a ship here, or your predator is in the area from the ship so that the, uh, the orcas can just gracefully move away and come back. If we could speak their language, we could be much more humane in the way that, that we interact with them. Interspecies communication has been grabbing a lot of attention in recent years, along with grant money. A new group called Project SETI got funding from the Audacious Project at TED to listen to and try to understand sperm whales. Given all the energy in the space, it gives me a lot of hope. Speaking of hope, remember at the top of part one of our show, we introduced you to the grieving orca mom, Tahlequah. The southern resident killer whale that carried her dead calf for 17 days two years ago is pregnant again. Well, this is it's a hopeful new- footnote, and we could sure use one. But it will be more than a year before we'll know whether the calf makes it to term and whether it will be viable. As for advanced communication, because we already have communication between people and animals, but for advanced communication, knowing whether that's possible will likely take even longer. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. 
Lee Camping-Carter is digital director of The Future of Everything. This episode's sound designer is Sean Marquand. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Our editor for this week's show is Chris Zinsley. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>